So we kicked off this scary series uh, last Sunday. I got some, some encouraging comments on social media uh, about it, mostly in the form of uh, pictures and memes. So I thought I would share some of those with you. For example, I got this one. Uh, why didn't anyone tell me this? You ever seen that before? It's like mind blown right there. That's unbelievable. Uh, and, and then I got this about where candy corn comes from. Which is um, <laughs> disgusting. Cindy Matza. You should be ashamed of yourself. And then she sent me this one too, which I kind of like this one. Things happen for a reason, except for clowns. There's no reason for clowns. So if you weren't here last week, go back and listen to it online. That will make sense. We're talking about scary things. October is the month of scary. Uh, dressing up, decorating. Uh, any store that you go in has blow-ups and animatronics and things to put in your yard. I was thinking this week, I was in Home Depot and I was thinking, you know, it's, it's sort of delaying the Christmas decoration because Halloween decoration has become so popular. You still got all of these animatronics and blow-ups and different things out for Halloween. I shared last week that America will spend $8.4 billion on Halloween, and that's one of the reasons, all these new things. Even video projection now, I've seen some advertisement, video projection things for Halloween you do up on your house. It's crazy, and, and I admitted last week, I'm not really into scary, like that's not my thing, books and movies, and I'm just not into scary, but we're talking about this subject, uh, scary, because in the Bible, there are some things, and I don't know if we'd use the word scary to describe, there are some things in the Bible that are sobering, like they're weighty. Hopefully, when you come across these things, they make you think. Like you step back and go, wow, that's a, that's a big deal right there. That's, that has an element, could have an element maybe of, of fear to it. And the one I want to talk about today, surprisingly, the Bible actually commands us to fear in some places commands us, says you should fear. One example, Deuteronomy chapter 10, and I'll give you some other examples as we go through this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse, beginning in verse 12, it's not a suggestion, it's not a good principle to go by. This is a command. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? What does God want from you? Moses is saying to the, the Israelites, what does God want most from you but to fear the Lord your God? Fear the Lord. What God wants most, He wants you to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to Him, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own Good. So Moses is giving this speech, these commands to the people, and he says, here's what God wants. God wants you to fear the Lord our God. And then he goes on to mention some things that, that probably come out of that relationship to God. And I think we could kind of brush over that phrase. We could kind of get to, I mean, we understand walk in obedience, love Him, serve the Lord, all your heart with all your soul. Those are familiar phrases. We, we could kind of jump over the fear of the Lord as an exaggeration or, or maybe as a poetic device that, that Moses was using, um, except it appears over and over again in the Bible. 
It's not like one obscure little place that this phrase is used and we're not really sure what it was all about. And so we're not going to bother with that phrase. We get that idea again and again in different types of writing, narrative writing and poetic writing, Old Testament, New Testament, this same sort of phrase, fear the Lord. So then, then we have to ask, okay, what does that mean? What is it? How do you define Fear the Lord. What is God saying? What does he mean by fear the Lord? And then secondly, what does it look like if, if I was doing that? If that was happening, whether I can define it or not, if that was happening in me, what would it look like? What would be going on in my life if I truly lived a life where I'm fearing the Lord? Now, I think we, we live in 2016. Uh, we live in a time when we're Always very concerned about people's feelings, right, and emotions, not hurting feelings and, and being careful with feelings and, and, and how people perceive things. I, I, I think our initial instinct with this phrase, especially living in 2016, is to kind of walk back that word a little bit, um, uh, to to make it a little more palatable, to, to do, can we take the sting out of that word? Because that's a fairly aggressive word. That's our initial response to this phrase, I think, most of the time. And, and I would suggest this morning, that's probably not a good thing to do. That's probably not a good place to start, at least. And while, while all of our understandings and our definitions and connotations of fear may not fit this phrase, I, I think we need to be careful not to say, well, it just means to respect God. I, I think it's heavier than that. I think it's weightier than that. I think, I think God could have said that if that's what he meant. It doesn't just mean, well, yeah, I respect God. It, I've tried to come up with some alternative word because there are connotations to fear that we don't want with this phrase. The best I can do is that God is saying, live your life in reverential awe of who God is. Not just I respect Him, no, I revere Him. I am in awe of, I'm in awe of His love and His grace and His mercy and His forgiveness, but I'm also in awe of His power. I'm in awe of what He knows and His sovereignty and His ruling over, and I'm going to approach Him, I'm going to speak to Him and of Him in reverential awe. Um, we are drawn to language an illustration and metaphor that, that depicts God as our friend. We like that description of God, especially today. Uh, and in a sense, God is our friend. Jesus says to his disciples right before he's going to be betrayed, he says, I no longer call you servants, now I call you my friends. There is that relationship, that nearness, that closeness that we ought to think of uh, when we think of God. But the problem is there are connotations for our friendships that we, I think we bring over to our relationship with God that are not all that healthy. For example, we like friends who don't question us. We prefer friends who don't confront us. We prefer friends who don't 
tell us that we're wrong. We prefer friends who always agree with us. We prefer friends who like the same things we like. They like the same movies. They listen to the same music. They like the same food. We prioritize similarity in our friends. I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, there's some people you get along with, some people you don't. And a lot of that's based on similarity. We prefer friends who see everything the way we see it, agree with all of our opinions and all of our thoughts. God isn't that type of friend. God is the type of friend who is at times painfully honest with us. God is the type of friend who has no problem confronting us when we're wrong. In a loving, gracious, forgiving way. God is the type of friend who is willing to say no to us. Those aren't the friends we choose on earth. This this is the type of friend that God is to us. I mean, honestly, in, in earthly relationships, we tend to move away from those friends who confront us and tell us that maybe we're wrong, who who don't tell us we're awesome and wonderful all the time. We, we, it's not necessarily that we're not friends with them. We just limit our time with that group of friends and maximize our time with the group of friends who tell us that we're great and we're right about everything. God isn't that type of friend. God is a friend who lovingly, graciously confronts us at times. He's okay with that tension. He will not settle for just being the yes friend. Now, God says yes whenever yes is right. But he's also willing to lovingly say no to you and to me. God is the friend who will lovingly call the best out of us, even if that is sometimes painful. That's the kind of friend he is. God is not an avoider. God does not prioritize agreement over righteousness. We do that in our friendships. We prioritize agreement. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes we realize we're just not going to talk about that. We're just not going to go there. We're just not going to have that conversation with that friend in order to keep the peace, in order to make everything agreeable. That's not necessarily a bad thing in human relationships. It's just in our friendship to God, it doesn't work that way. God is perfectly comfortable calling us out if we need to be called out. For one reason is because the relationship's already settled. Like we're already, if we're a follower of Jesus, we're in relationship with God and nothing's going to change that relationship. Our relationship is eternally settled in Christ. And so God is perfectly comfortable and secure to step in and go, no, we need to talk about this. I need to confront you about this. You need to change this. See, one of the One of the great mistakes we make, I think, in our spiritual life, and I say we, well, all of us, one of the great mistakes that we make is we assume God thinks the way we think about everything. We assume that God has the same opinion that I have about everything. We assume that God's angry at all the things I'm 
angry about. And God likes, loves all of the things that I like and love. That's the type of friend we project onto God. He's the friend that sees everything the way I see it. He's the friend that holds all of the opinions that I hold. That's the type of friend God is. That's what, that's what we see him as often. Here's, here's the problem. If God <clears throat> never confronts us, never says no to us, never views an issue differently from us, perhaps we aren't worshiping God. Maybe we're worshiping ourselves. I mean, if God never has a different opinion than you, if your image, if your view of God doesn't allow for God to say no to you or for God to view a subject matter different from the way that you view it, then maybe you're not worshiping God. Maybe you're worshiping your projected opinions. Because God will say no sometimes. God will confront sometimes. God will convict sometimes. This is why this fear of the Lord is so important. This is why the reverential awe of God is so important. We need to be aware that just because I think something, just because I feel something, doesn't automatically mean that God feels that or thinks that. Because what I think, what I feel, what my opinions are, have to be checked through the grid of God's character revealed in God's Word for me to know, is this just my opinion or is this God's opinion? Is this the way... God thinks about it, or is this the way I think about it? And without this reverential awe, I don't put myself in that position very often. I don't put myself in a position where I'm willing to admit, you know what, I was wrong about that. My view is wrong on that. My actions are wrong because God has already spoken about that. Here's what happens when we fear the Lord. When we fear the Lord, when we truly have this reverential awe for God, we recognize God's place and we remember our place. This is what fear of the Lord, reverential awe of the Lord does for us. We recognize the position that God is in and we remember the position that we're in. God is in heaven and I'm not. God is God and I'm not. God is truth I don't determine truth. God is righteous. I don't determine what's righteous. It's the, it's the conversation that you have, parents, often with your children, and when you have to remind them who the parent is. Right? Like, um, so who's the parent in this relationship? <laughs> Just a reminder? Uh, who's going to actually have the last say? I mean, I'm going to listen, but at the end of this, I'm making the call because which one of us is the parent and which one of us is the child? It's to be careful how you speak because I'm the parent and you're the child. Be careful how you talk to your mama because right? she's the mama and you're not. And you have that conversation with your kids as they're growing up because they forget place, right? They forget who's the boss. They, they, 
You forget who brought them in this world and who'll take them out, right? Uh, that whole thing. Yeah. Similarly, this reverential awe, this fear of the Lord. It's not that I'm cowering, afraid he's going to strike me down. That's not, that's not the connotation anywhere in the Bible of our approach to God. It is the recognition that you're God and I'm not. You're on the throne and I'm not. You're sovereign and I'm not. You're all-powerful and I'm not. And I'm going to recognize your position and I'm going to always remember my position. That's, that's the place we come to with a healthy, appropriate fear of the Lord, reverential awe for the Lord. God, you're above and I'm below. As a matter of fact, the first commandment of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 23, 20, verse 3, You shall have no other gods before me. In other words, let's get everything in the right place. Let's remember who the parent is. You shall have no other gods before me, including you. You don't put you ahead of me. You recognize God's position and you remember your position. Anything else the Bible calls idolatry. Anything anything that takes God off of the throne, off of first off of authority in my life, anything else is idolatry. Anything else also contributes to a casual approach to God. I think, again, one of the dangers of the world that we live in is that nothing really is sacred. Nothing is, in church world, we would say, nothing is holy. Like Nothing is untouchable. Nothing is sacred and revered. You see this in comedy. I'm convinced there is absolutely nothing that comedians won't go after now. Nothing. Because we've lost the sense of the sacred. And the opposite of the sacred is the profane. So we live in a world of the profane, and part of the reason is we've allowed a very casual approach to God to develop in our life, very very casual in the way we think of Him, casual in the way that we speak of Him, maybe even speak to Him. He's he's our friend in one sense, in that there's this wonderful life-giving relationship that we have with him. But he's not our buddy riding shotgun. He's God. And to fear the Lord is to be constantly aware that you are God and I'm not. And I'm under your authority. And you decide right and wrong. You decide truth. And I submit to that. Another aspect of fearing the Lord. The fear of the Lord guides my thoughts, motives, and behavior in the process of becoming more like Jesus. If this is happening, if I'm recognizing God's position, remembering mine, if I have this reverential awe, if I view God as the sacred God that He is, I change. Like I, I, I... get conformed more into the image of Jesus. The big theological word for it is sanctification. It's that process that begins when we trust our life to Christ and ends when we get to heaven. 
It's the process by which I'm continually becoming more and more like Christ. My, my thoughts, my judgment, my discernment, my action, my motives, my relationships, they more and more reflect who Jesus is. And, and read the New Testament. It, it's really clear. This ought to be happening continually in our lives. None of us in this life are going to arrive at a time where we're perfect. The Bible doesn't suggest that. We're not going to arrive at a time in this life when we have it all together. But the Bible does say that the more you walk with Jesus, the more you live under the authority of the Heavenly Father, the more your heart and life and actions conform to the person of Jesus. There's really no evidence in the New Testament of someone coming to Christ and staying the same. There's no evidence of someone coming into relationship with Jesus and that not beginning to change the way they speak and the the way they act and the way they view people and the, the things that weigh on their heart and the things that bother them. All of that conforms more and more into the image of Jesus as I live under the authority of my Heavenly Father. My ability to be self disciplined and And to show restraint, all of that happens as a result of a proper fear or reverential awe of the Lord. And and it's not that I'm afraid I'm going to mess up, so I'm trying to do better. It's not that I'm I'm afraid He's going to punish me, so I don't want to make a misstep. It's not that at all. It's It's an understanding of who God is and the mercy and grace and love that He's showered upon me that causes me to want to live more and more for Him. When I was a kid, um, I, I was a really decent kid. Uh, I, wasn't, I was not your prototypical preacher's kid who are terrible, right? I got three of them, right? And they're, they're awesome. They're, they're, they're awesome most of the time. And, and I was a good kid most of the time. Uh, I just, I didn't get into a lot of stuff that high school and college kids get into. I just didn't, I made my own mistakes, wasn't perfect by any stretch, but I was a decent kid growing up. And, And part of the reason for that was I had a great relationship with my parents. And, um... I know not everybody has that, and so these illustrations don't land for everybody. But for me, I just had a great, healthy, nurturing, encouraging relationship with my parents. And and I avoided a lot of things because I didn't want to disappoint my parents. I, 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 I didn't want to let my parents down. That, and I had an extremely guilty conscience about everything, and... I figured any time I messed up, I'd always get caught. But other than that, motivating factor to me was I love my relationship with my parents. I don't want to have that conversation with them. I don't want to sit at the dining room table and look at my dad and look at my mom and have to tell them what I did. I don't want to have that conversation. Wasn't perfect, made mistakes, just like everybody makes mistakes. But there was this, there was this sense of I respected and loved my parents so much that I I wanted the relationship to be as good as it could possibly be. That's a little bit the sense of of how we relate to God 
in our spiritual life and spiritual growth. It's, it's not that I'm afraid he's going to zap me because the Bible doesn't say that sort of thing. It's not that I'm afraid I'm going to get punished. It, it, it's not I'm thinking, well, if I do a lot of good things, God's going to do a lot of good things for me. It's not any of that. It's that God's forgiven me and, and showered me with grace and love and giving, giving me eternal life. And my relationship to him is such a strength for me. It's something I lean on. I don't want to do anything that would hinder that relationship. I don't want to do anything that would interrupt that relationship. And the Bible says when we, when we get this idea of revering God, of being in awe of God, this fear of the Lord idea right, it produces life change in us. We desire life change that will more reflect the person of Jesus. I'll give you a New Testament example. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So Paul is quoting some Old Testament passages from different prophets. His point here at the end of chapter 6 is, you really ought to be different than people who don't know Jesus. Your life should be different. Your your life should stand out, not, not more valuable, not more loved by God, nothing like that. But your life should be distinct. You should be set apart. You should be unique. You should be different. Come out from among them, he said. You you shouldn't think the way everybody else thinks. You shouldn't act the way everybody else acts. You shouldn't speak the way everybody else speaks. There should be something distinctive about you because you are a follower of Jesus. Then he rolls right into this verse. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. And that word reverence is often translated as fear. It's the New Testament word that gets translated fear, sometimes reverence. Let's perfect holiness. Let's become who Jesus has called us to be because we understand God's God and I'm not. Because we understand he's big and I'm not. He's authority and I'm not. He's right and I'm not always right. My life conforms more and more to the image of God because I live with a healthy sense of God's authority over me and my reverential awe back towards him. Another example, Ephesians 5.21, Paul's given instructions to husbands and wives and he says... Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Same word that was used in 2 Corinthians. Reverence, sometimes translated fear. Submit to one another in your marriage, husbands and wives, because you always feel like doing that. No, you don't. No, you don't. Submit to one another because your spouse is always right. They think they're always right, but they're not always right, all right? No, that's not what he says. He says, submit to one another 
because you fear the Lord, because you live under the authority of the Lord, and this is what He wants for your relationship. And sometimes it's going to be easy. You're going to go through spells in your marriage. Man, submitting to one another is going to be easy and great, and everything's going to be wonderful, and then there are going to be seasons where you submit to one another just because you're under the authority of God. And this is what God wants for you. And it's not just in marriage. It's in everything in our life. It's in everything of our life. When God gives a command, we don't always feel like obeying that. We don't always feel like it's the right thing to do. We don't always feel like it's the helpful thing to do. But we don't do it for those reasons. We obey Him and we because we live under His authority. We are in awe of Him and we know what he's telling us is for our good. That verse we read at the beginning from Deuteronomy, that's how Moses ended that, uh, that phrase. Observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. Like I'm not telling you to fear the Lord and that's going to be a real burden for you. I'm telling you, live under God's authority. Accept God's right and wrong. Accept the truth as God gives it to you because this is for you. This is for your own good to live in this manner. Another aspect of fearing the Lord. Living with an accurate view of God, who He is and who I am produces wisdom. As I'm living under His authority, as I'm submitting to what God says is right and wrong, as I'm submitting my opinions and my perspective under God's authority, yielded to His truth, what's happening in me is I'm getting more discerning and wiser. Proverbs is full of this sort of language. Proverbs 9.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Living under God's authority, reverential awe for you, this, uh, for Him. This is where wisdom begins in us. So I'm learning to make better choices. I'm learning to see more clearly. I'm learning to discern that not everything the world thinks is true. I'm learning to discern. That just because something is popular, just because an issue is at the forefront, just because an issue is popular in our culture right now, doesn't make culture's view of that issue right. Because I live under the fear of the Lord, and it's giving me wisdom. It's helping me be able to discern, to have godly perspective on the issues of the day and of my life. It protects me from being influenced by the perspective of the world that's not guided by God's truth because I'm growing in wisdom. So if you're living in the fear of the Lord, you can ask these sort of questions. Am I living constantly remembering, recognizing God's place and remembering my place? Do I I recognize God's place remember my place. Another question. Am I changing for the better? Do I, do I sense the process of becoming more like Jesus happening in my life? Do I see it? Can I look back at my life and can I see it? 
Do I sense that I'm growing in wisdom? Do other people sense that I'm growing in wisdom? Because that happens as I'm submitting to the authority of God in my life. Because ultimately, all of that's for our good. This submitting of my thoughts and perspectives and opinions, it's ultimately for my good, for your good. And it begins with the fear of the Lord. Let's pray. God, I ask that your spirit would continue to teach us what it means, looks like, feels like to live with the right reverential awe of who you are, to not be casual, to not be flippant, to not be profane even. And our thoughts of you, our speaking to you, our living for you, that it would result in greater life change, being conformed to the image of Jesus, that it would result in greater wisdom. That I would trust you enough to be able to say, this opinion that I'm holding is influenced by the world and I got to let that go because God is my authority. My perspective is being shaped by the world. So I got to change perspectives because when I'm living in the fear of the Lord under His reverential awe, I want God to shape my thinking. I want God to shape my opinions and my perspectives. God, we live in a world that's trying everything possible to squeeze our thinking into worldly molds, to eradicate your authority over our lives. But help us to walk under your authority. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.